Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 219. How are you all? Thank you for tuning in. Um, I've been hyping this episode for a while. My guest today is Chile Gonzalez, who I'm just a huge fan of. I was excited. In fact, he hit me up about the podcast, which excited me because we'd met briefly a long time ago. And yeah, like when you're touring and stuff like that, you kind of you kind of assume that there's some people you bump into that it probably means more to you than it does to them, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Chile. So I was excited anyway. And then I went and met him and we had, honestly, I think one of the best conversations I've had on the Distraction Pieces podcast. The It, 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 it ranged, it, it, it went in, in many different directions and had some great insights and, and information. So yeah. I really enjoyed it, but before we get into that, I should mention um, a few things. So, obviously, we've had some new podcasts on the network, and Brett Goldstein's Films to be Buried With is, uh, I'm confident, going to become a bigger podcast than mine. Um, It's already got in the top 10 of all podcasts, so it got to number one of its its genre straight away, and it got to number seven or eight of all the podcasts in the UK um it's because he's it, n- number one he's an amazing host and it's an amazing concept number two he's had guests like um J- James A Caster Catherine Ryan and Nish Kumar and tomorrow he has little old me so um yeah check that out we've obviously also launched off the beaten track which is Stu Whiffin's one I've just finished listening to his his episode with DJ Destruction and it's one of my favorites um Anyone who knows Stu from Hardcore Listing will associate him with some sh- shambolic, hilarious, but shambolic mayhem. And the DJ Distraction episode of Off the Beaten Track is so well researched, informative, articulate. It's great. So I recommend you check both of them out. And obviously, Hardcore Listing, still the muddy crown jewel of the Distraction Pieces n- network. Um, a Tuesday Night Jaw with Jim Smallman. A Say Why to Drugs with Dr. Susie Gage is still still doing great numbers. Even though we've not done any new ones for a while, they remain there as kind of a research tool. Because what happens, if you've not heard it, on Say Why to Drugs, we Dr. Susie Gage and I sit down and we pick a different drug each episode. And Susie is a doctor and has done research on these things. So, yeah. She gets all this information. I give my experiences as a previous, a former drug user. And yeah, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a podcast. And last but 100% not least, the Stop and Search podcast with Jason Reed, which recently made history being the first podcast recorded in Parliament um, with politicians discussing potential changes for our drug law. And genuinely, discussions are being had. It's amazing that the, the work that Leap UK are doing and that J- J- Jason Reed in general on the on the, the Stop and Search podcast is doing. It's mind-blowing. Anyway, I'm rambling on. We're brought to you, as ever, by com. We've just done a little sneaky top-up of the uh, a You See a Mouse Trap, I See Free Cheese and a, f- a, f- a Fucking Challenge barbecue apron. We sold that like three years ago and I didn't do a rerun. It was a limited thing. And tons of people have asked about it. And just to kind of, along with obviously the sunglasses and the three different caps we've got there, along with all those to kind of, and the swimsuits and everything else, the vests, 
I thought to s- celebrate the uh, extended run of 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 barbecue weather uh, we're having, I'd do a very limited run of them. So even as I record this, they may have sold out by the time you hear it. But yeah, speechdevelopmentrecords.com. I also need to tell you that there's a bonus episode on Friday because Friday, as you'll know, is or as, as some of you will know, is my birthday. And those who know that will know I always release something on my birthday. So Friday's podcast is 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 a twofold event. Number one, it's announcing what it is that I'm releasing. And it's very limited edition. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to, to, to say there. But what the podcast is, is I decided to have a birthday party. So I gave all my celebrity friends and non-celebrity friends um a call i got them to save the date i told them the time and then we just started recording so um friday is a special birthday party distraction pieces podcast so you're going to enjoy that let's get on with the podcast this week's guest is chili gonzalez and i honestly think it's one of my favorite conversations i've i've had on or off the podcast so check it out and enjoy it episode 219 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. But yeah, what I love about what's happening with podcasting is people in the big companies and record labels or film companies are realising the strength of podcasts. So whilst the listenership might not be as big as going on the BBC, the people who are listening are listening because they're actually listening and they're choosing to listen. Whereas the radio figures, people have got it on at work, they've got it on in their car, they're doing other things, they're not paying attention. Whereas with a podcast, you have got that, you know, if it's 20,000 listeners, that's 20,000 who've listened when they have time to pay attention. It's like a deep lake rather than a shallow ocean. Yeah, 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 completely. And that's nice that that people are, yeah, are gradually realising that and opening up to that. It's why I'm kind of, I'm getting kind of some some big labels and big film companies all all suddenly approach me. It used to be having to convince them and say, look, honestly, I know an hour's a long time. I know two hours is a long time, but just please, please hook me up. But I'm, I'm, I'm here today with... A, a Chili Gonzalez. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's nice to see you again after meeting you in 2000, I want to say, nine. I would have said eight or nine, yeah. That's right. And it was only br- briefly as well. And I would have, I know I would have been a bit nervous and starstruck because I was, I'm, I, or I am a big fan of you. Um, long before that, I kind of, I found you through... The Entertainist album in, in 2002 and then went back to Uber Alice and then continued all the way through kind of presidential suite and Z and all that kind of thing. And it's an interesting route that you've had because it was only in the years to come that I realised that you're an amazing classical pianist, a virtuoso and this kind of thing. And I found out of you from you from kind of crude raps and and things like that so so how's that how how have you decided this kind of this crazy path that you've had well as you know looking at a path in retrospect i'm sure you also have this having sort of 
gone from music and then find yourself podcasting, yeah. acting, and all the yeah, things yeah, yeah. you do, you tend to want to put a master plan on it in yeah. retrospect. But of course, <laughs> yeah. all you're doing is a series of micro decisions every single day yeah. about what feels good and what seems to be resonating with people. You know, you always keep an eye out on what works with people without yeah. fundamentally changing yourself. And people are, you know, people are multi multiple. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a moment where I think the order in which people see those sides can sometimes tell a very coherent story. Yeah. In my case, it was a, it was a rocky beginning because the moment that sort of people saw of me in most cases yeah. was sort of the wish fulfillment part of what I do rather than the sort of, impress your grandma part yeah. of what I do. Yeah. I feel like everybody has those two sides. Yeah, yeah. It's that, that fundamental part that's like where they can sort of express, you know, you just see it in the body language. There's things that people do where it's, yes, I'm at home doing this. Yeah. This is the source of my confidence. Yeah. And coupled with that, I think every interesting artist has that other side, which is, but this is something else I wish I could do. In my case, it was rapping and the kind of performance art style, the, the, the media provocation that I was experimenting with, yeah. all of that was kind of sort of a fantasy in a way yeah. uh, of being more than just the pianist that I was. Yeah. And so the order in which those sort of things were divulged might have made it a bit more surprising is, is maybe the better word, but yeah. confusing would be the negative word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until it all kind of got course corrected, I guess, around the time we actually met where yeah. I was able to incorporate being at the piano in my bathrobe, yeah. yet rapping and yeah. sort of finally integrated those two previously extreme sides of myself. And it's, it's beautiful to see, again, when you look back at points of your life that you may have seen as chaotic and decisions that you made or that were forced upon you or things you think went well and things you didn't think went well. It's beautiful to see that more often than not, these things all come together in the end. And one of the, the prime examples of that, I'm a big fan of your, and we'll dart all over the place in this. That's how, 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 how my, my format seems to be. I plan it meticulously on, yes, on notes and then ignore pieces it completely. Pieces of distractions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the, the kind of, the thing that I, I the, that really jumped out to me was um, the first time I saw some of your um, pop deconstructions on on YouTube. And it was the perfect conversation or, or combination of everything you'd kind of built up to because it's looking at that pop sensibilities. It's looking... I mean, there's a deconstruction of a Taylor Swift song, a Daft Punk song, um, it, it, Iggy Azalea I saw, Queen, I think, and a load in there. And... The beauty of it to me was that you in no way are you disrespecting or or, or, or saying because again it can be a tradition these days that pop is so disposable but what you're finding is the artistry in it the beautiful simplicity of, of repetition of playing the of putting these certain notes together but you're able to then drop in a bit of prints or articulate it in ways that kind of go look I I'm looking at pop, I'm comparing it with the flutter of some fingers with some some a classical piece or a piece you know from your childhood and showing that these things all tie together. So That's right. It's it's almost like a humanistic view of music and yeah. genre and and uh musical times. Yeah. You know, yeah. epoch, whatever that word yeah. is. And so if you concentrate on what makes 
all these different styles and times that people made music in. And you concentrate on that sort of 98% of the DNA that's the same, then you sort of end up with a humanistic view of music as opposed to a nationalistic view of music, which would be like, this style is better than the others, or it means more because of its social background Mm -hmm. or means less because of its social background. For example, I just had an interview the other day with a guy who loves blues and jazz, Mm. but won't listen to rap because the lyrics are offensive. And I said, you listen to blues. Tell me some of the blues lyrics that you listened to most recently. And it's like, oh, the guy broke his uh, whiskey bottle over his wife's head. Sounds a lot like probably a rap song you might have heard recently. And those moments where you sort of are able to show people, you know, it's it's mostly the same. And like humans and chimpanzees, we don't want to admit it, but we also share ninety eight percent of our DNA. Yeah. yeah. And so I think music is kind of the same, at least in the West. And I, I I don't want to. There's so many styles of music and cultures that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. That yeah. maybe don't view their music through the prism of the twelve notes of the piano. So yeah. Yeah. Of I course. guess what I'm talking about is you know European and North American traditions. Yeah. Uh, whether they're blues classical all those things really do share those 12 notes as the main dna and being a piano player you have this unique view because the piano is kind of like this atomic version of music you hear piano in every kind of music still listen to any rap album and there's a lot of piano still electronic music has tons of piano yeah those like house piano riffs that were like the basis of house music completely and uh and so you kind of realize okay let's just like focus on things like arpeggios or the switching of major to minor or what is the storytelling of tension and release in music and find those examples in modern day pop songs and if that's the hook that gets people in it's actually a little bit of a bait and switch because i'm not necessarily even talking about that pop song but just making the point that these tools yeah will recur through the centuries yeah and over many styles and i believe it's because we overrate the importance of the technology, meaning the instruments that make music, uh, and also sometimes the social movements that give rise to these styles. Yeah, completely. That's very important and defining for a style yeah. of music, but the musical material itself is really the same. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, and, and again, we do that positively and negatively, I think. And, and, and pop can be a prime example of people who are into their music saying, oh, that song's shit, or oh, that song... It's like... Well, no, it's it's not to your taste, but that's that's the beauty of this, the breakdown of the Iggy Azalea song. I'm not a fan of Iggy, but I loved that breakdown because it made me go, oh, wow, this is, the structure of it is so simple and and uh, and the, the similarities are, are across the board. It's just, it makes you drop those preconceptions because I'll be honest, I wasn't a fan of Iggy before I'd heard any of her music. So that was my, that's me. That's my own prejudice. That's my own, I'm not into that kind of shit. So I'm coming to it with preconceptions, with my own ideas in mind. Therefore, I can't enjoy it. So to see it kind of ripped apart and deconstructed with songs that I like and compared to songs that I respect, even if I don't like, it's kind of, yeah, it's beautiful to go, wow. That's but how that but in another way, I'm, I'm not even really qualitatively evaluating it positively no. or negatively. I'm just saying, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. And I focused on that second phrase, which sounds yeah. like a schoolyard taunt, you yeah. know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a song where she's bragging about her lifestyle. And so I'm, I'm not even saying that's a good thing. I also happen to not really like that song. Yeah. But when you zoom in on music that is 
touching a nerve with sort of society at large. There has to be a reason. So at least I want to find, try to find out what that reason might be and show that at least even though music is very reduced and as the centuries go on, music just reduces, reduces, reduces. And when I first heard that song, I was like, there's almost no drum beat in that song. Yeah. It's almost kind of just a bass line and vocals. It's yeah. quite, quite impressive and yeah. it's how reduced it is. And yet when you zoom in, it tells a story, you know, yeah. and that bass line, I mean, that might seem like nothing's happening, but zoom right in yeah. and you're like, oh, there's a little syncopation in the first phrase, which creates uncertainty. And then it gets resolved yeah, yeah. by that last note finally arriving on the beat. Yeah. So the syncopation in that case, though infinitesimal, represents the equivalent of what would have been like a crazy tense chord in a symphony yeah, yeah. where people are like, oh my God, I'm so tense right now because like that chord just yeah. needs to go somewhere. And yeah. then you'd get the final ending of the symphony. And that's like macro tension and release. Yeah. And the Iggy Azalea song or whoever produced it, because of course we're often talking yeah. about the producers yeah, 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 behind yeah, the yeah. music of course, anyway, of um, somehow turned that tense chord from the symphony in just that little, the little syncopation of that one note coming a little bit earlier than you think yeah. and then resolving. So I guess in 20 more years, there's going to be an even simpler song. But when we zoom in on that song, yeah. there's also going to be something. There will be storytelling. There will be tension and release because music just can't exist without it. It's, it's, it's beautiful because that, 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 that question and, and, and resolution, we love that as humans. We love to have things solved, have that problem. So even if that's on a subconscious a level there's something as you've said in that beat that is going to be engaging whether you're into that particular song or not so that's again whether you can say that was always intentional or this or that but as you say yeah it breaks down perfectly to be here's the story here's why that's enjoyable to listen to because you get taken on that journey from just the baseline alone isn't tension and and resolution essentially just like the hero's journey you know going somewhere for and conflict uncertainty quest for something and then the resolution i mean it's it doesn't really work in the in the opposite way that i can ever really think yeah, of it's true in in breaking down music and looking deeper into songs and many different genres do you have a kind of a belief in what the key is to to a hit to a classic to a well, what's beautiful about it is that it is the X factor in yeah. the end. I mean, if I say Daft Punk use arpeggios in this song, and so did Chopin, yeah. and so did Glenn Miller, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, did yeah, the yeah, Eagles, yeah. that doesn't mean that if you use an arpeggio, you're going to join the exclusive club of the Eagles, yeah. Chopin, Daft yeah. Punk. And, um, there is the X factor, but the point is when a song connects like that, you say, okay, there's an X factor that made that song great, but let's look at the tools that that person used. And they obviously combined them in some fresh way uh, that we can't to the en- we can't go to the end of that process because at some point it becomes the abstraction of the X factor. Yeah. Just the way that many yeah. people who, as you were mentioning, are maybe a little bit dismissive of pop yeah. uh, because it's either not to their taste or there's also some sort of social self-image that they have that means that they don't permit themselves yeah. to like something like that because they see themselves as not mainstream people or whatever is going on in their mind that yeah. makes them go, you know, I don't listen to pop music. That's, yeah. you know, that's a, a that's a sentence I like to hear myself say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Those yeah, kind yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. They might even say, if they're musicians making 
sort of uh, music that's much more niche, yeah. they might cynically say, oh, I know how to write a pop song. I heard, of course, all you got to do is XXX. Yeah. And you kind of want to say, look, if it's so easy, go do it. I've, I've had, uh, as, particularly when dubstep blew up, I had so many producer friends who were like, honestly, I'm thinking of making a dubstep song just, just to have a, a big All I got to do is drop money. a beat and put a whoosh it's in like, there. Oh, will yeah. Well, Maybe do that, and, and let's let's see how that goes. Because it's not as it can't be as simple as that. Of course, and me as the person who's sort of, you know, doing these videos once in a while, I'll see just like how a certain tweet phrases it. Like Chili Gonzalez explains why I can't feel my face is a hit. I'm like, no, if I could explain why it was a hit, I wouldn't be analyzing it. I'd, I'd be writing my own. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's? I mean, I think it's interesting how over time the process of of making the the end the finish line on the process of making a hit has changed whereas at a point it was ended at the songwriting and then the performing i think now there is the the the, the presentation in which you hear it where you hear it from as you said because of preconceptions and also the thing that i've kind of learned over years even of just my own music is repetition or or or, or no i'll rephrase that a familiarity is one of the biggest keys to songs that we love. The songs that we love the most tend to be of, of any artist, for example, any artist that we adore. Normally our favourite songs of theirs are the ones that we've heard the most or got as a teenager or whatever time and heard it on repeat and on repeat. And it, it then lends itself to things like Radio 1 who have a smaller playlist but play the same songs on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. And that, that gets into your head and you love that song. You may not have loved it if you just heard it on a mate's CD saying, I'm making some music. Whereas because you've heard it repeatedly, you suddenly get that, it gets into you, and that that familiarity is is now one of the, the, the key ingredients. Well, yeah, and it turns out the great democratizing internet actually has the effect of making more conformism, con- more conformity, is what yeah. I meant to say, uh, than individualism, which yeah. on paper it would have seemed like, now everyone can say what they like, yeah. and yet everyone more and more likes the same thing so yeah. that's counterintuitive right there and I guess algorithms things like algorithms yeah. I don't know how they work but they tend to push certain things to the top that will just sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. that those things become the biggest songs or the or the yeah. most read articles and things like that it's no different is it because again you would have said when particularly when I was doing my first rap and that you're like to become a hit you need to be on the Radio 1 playlist. But it was that kind of that weird thing of, but you need to be a hit to be on the, the Radio 1 playlist, right. is what comes first. And you said, you think the internet's changed, but that's exactly, algorithms have kind of stopped that, because it's still, you need to be in that right algorithm, and then it makes itself happen. If, if you've got a way in, a back door... Yeah, it's like when you're applying you for a job, the and they say, you know, experience necessary, and you're like, well, how am I supposed to get experience? Mate, I've, I've been going for... And it's, it's something I want to... Uh, talk about actually because your journey took you from Canada into Europe all in times when tra- traveling around the world was a far more friendly and open thing I've, I've been going through recently uh, trying to get a, a, a US visa for acting because I've been up for a load of roles but the restriction is well you've not got a visa yet and we start shooting soon but you need to have a role to get a visa it's exactly the same it's that kind of you go for a visa like have you got a role it's like no, because I haven't got a visa. <laughs> and have you got a visa? Well, 
No, if you confirm the role, I'll get the. Vi- it's that. It is. It's that complete contradictory ch- I, a I chicken and egg. The word you're looking for is Kafka esque. Yeah, yeah, yes. completely, completely. It just it, it yeah it, it feeds itself and restricts itself in the same time. It's it's mind blowing. But so, so what were, you, were your influences growing up? Because you trained in music, right? You studied. I, I did study, but but I, I kept on taking breaks. So yeah. I kind of had this like respect for music instilled in me by my maternal grandfather, yeah. who was like a Hungarian Jew who had, had sort of forcibly left Hungary and wow. wanted to hold on to European culture. Yeah. So he was quite intent with both my older brother and I. My older brother's also a musician, and he he's a film it's star such composer. A European thing of in Hollywood of, of that 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 time of a, a, a girl I used to know who's her grandmother was from Germany and had left at that time as well. And exactly the same, instilled in her piano every day. and Holding on to it, you know? Yeah, exactly. This has to be part of your culture despite you being away from your culture. Exactly, this is who you really are. Well, because you're away from your culture, I guess, yeah. Yeah. But then also a sort of scary, you have to respect this and and respect these composers. And so it was a little bit, in a way, terrifying. Yeah. And then I would sort of escape to just like making music with my brother for a while. And then when I broke away from him to sort of around age 13, 14, it was like, no, I want to make music with my friends. I want to start my own band. But then I would always sort of hear the siren call of mastery. Like, I want to know more about music. I want to feel connected. I want to to know what all the musicians who came before me discovered and take advantage of that. And then I would just sort of be able to handle that for a limited time only and then the sort of the disrespect would kind of kick back in and I would just be like no all I, w- all I want to do is have fun it's too stifling and so I've just always cycled back between this sort of actually sort of good student yeah. you know sort of a fairly disciplined and uh, and sort of like trusting what came before me somewhat yeah. reverential approach to music and then I would just sort of violently swing back to like no, music is only worth something when, you, when you're when you having fun and letting go with your friends. Yeah, and I absolutely. guess I sort of found a way to make music now that encompasses both of those. Yes, yeah. And, and so when you got to know me doing the crude raps, you yeah. caught me in a moment where I was like, it's only worth it if it's fun yeah. and letting go yeah, and provocative. Yeah, yeah. And you hadn't quite maybe seen the disciplined, reverential musician that I also was. Yeah. And that sort of got sort of you know, shown in solo piano one in 2004. Yeah. yeah. And then it was that five, six year period where I had to harmonize those elements and sort of get to where I am in the last, last five, six years where it sort of feels like, okay, this has sort of been integrated now. Yeah. It's so, such a strange, a strange one because it, it's, it's always dependent on when the, the listener or fan boarded that train. So if they boarded that train when they're hearing kind of rap and stuff like that, and then suddenly, oh, what's all this, this, this piano stuff? It's like, it feels like some big change. But it's like, well, no, the piano stuff came first, personally, in your life. And then this, and then it's... And if they've heard just the piano stuff, that when more electronics started to come back in and stuff like that, it's like, well, what's all this? It's like, well, no, it depends depends when you, you, you boarded this train. This has always had these, these, these platforms and stops. Yes, and I will say when I moved to Germany after a kind of slightly failed attempt at kind of major label pop yeah. that I did in Canada, there was yeah. a brief moment where I, I made one album for how, Warner Brothers. I was going to say, Canada. how was that? Because obviously it's touched upon in the song Candy, yes. and it's all it was all quite mysterious. And when I was, I was looking into it, it was, there was that that moment in Canada of of of, of Warner Brothers 
snapping you up and clearly from the looks of it trying to make you into this pop or into their vision of what you'll be as the big a Canadian act so how did that come about and how did it fall apart as such well I I actually that was it that was the moment of indie rock yeah. so uh, in Canada at that moment I would just go to, to our record store and look at the top 10 and it would have the sort of independently released music yeah little did I know that A&R guys and A&R women from major labels in Canada would equally go to those record stores yeah. and sort of just buy one of each of the top 10 indie albums and, yeah. and I remember thinking I want to be on that wall of the top 10 indie albums I guess the difference was like selling 30 copies a week versus 25 a week or something yeah 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 somehow I ended up there on like number 8 Amazing. and that week this this new A&R guy um, named Steve Jordan who became a nemesis for me I needed a nemesis for a while <laughs> now I, I don't have many hard feelings because I think I can sort of see that I was also a little bit naive back then, but uh, basically, uh, I was I was playing piano in a lingerie shop as my sort of day job. Amazing, playing like the lady in red when the lady in red would walk by. This is amazing! What a situation! This yeah. is perfect. And uh, I remember getting a call and really having one of those moments where you think a friend is prank calling you because yeah. it's like, "Hi, this is Steve Jordan from Warner Records." And, Come on, who, who's yes, what's going on seriously. here? And he really said, we're interested. And um, they re-released that indie album. I didn't even record a new album. Wow. And I went on tour. But it just very, within a matter of months, the whole thing had crashed and burned. It was all right. extremely fast. Yeah. They just, at some point, I think, overestimated my ability to have a kind of cohesive combination of music image storytelling all the things that i later took years to get good at yeah i actually at that point probably thought naively that music was enough yeah and that the rest would take care of itself yeah so i basically was like oh you want me to work with this photographer i'll work with this photographer this photographer thinks i should shave my head i'll shave my head they want to release this i just kind of thought yeah it's just like I already won because it's I got signed. Yeah, yeah. You know, like many people, it's like you yeah. get signed and you think you won, and it's like no, your hellscape is just beginning. Yeah, and you so, think it's the end of the race, and it's like no, no, you've just <laughs> you've rounded the first corner. There's there's so much more ahead. And, and then I, I saw the first articles, saw how horrible I looked, saw how horrible I came off in interviews, and I realized if I don't take control of the story. The story they're going to choose for me will right. be horrible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that just luckily was like a six to eight month from the phone call wow. to like the end of the deal was probably less than a year to be honest. It's amazing. It's 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 fascinating how you kind of said that you thought that the music would be enough, and it's it is a fascinating thing because there can be musicians who are the most talented people in the world, but can't in my mind can't write a good song and and there can be again it needs to be that combination of the two of having lived a little like having a story to tell and something to say and the ability to, to, to say it as well I guess when you've got musicians who are incredibly talented part of the the beauty and the art is their restraint is being able to go right I don't need to show off I don't need to show off I need to write a song there's a album I'm loving at the at the moment, by Tierra Wack called A Wack World, and I'd never heard of her. And she just put out this a yeah, fifteen with all minute the, like video. ninety second long songs. Yeah, yeah, they're all yeah. they're all one minute long songs. And the rest- at first, I was like, "Well, this sounds like just some commercial idea, Instagram videos, blah blah blah." And then I listened to the record on headphones, and it's amazing. And 
I was suddenly blown away by the anti-commercialism of it because there were certain songs on there that that's a Stone Cold banger and then it just stops. It's a straight-up hit, but it stops so it never becomes that. It never goes those extra minutes to see that where it builds to and where it drops down. It appears and goes and it's felt so punk rock and the restraint is there in anyone who's making music, who's got, again, is or, or finding that restraint is key to making music, I think, rather than going, I need to, sh- to sh- show off, I need to show everyone what I can do, going, well, they'll find out over the course of time. For now, I need to just write a song. I need to make something. Yeah, but I think you. it depends who your imagined audience is yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. And I know that because I was, in most of my teenage years, I was this, like, jazz interested yeah yeah white teenager who didn't really understand what jazz was yeah i just thought it was complicated music and so yeah. i was attracted to it and i would hang out with musicians who also just sort of wanted to play in a sort of complex harmonically advanced yeah and jazz was sort of just the convenient name we gave to it but it wasn't jazz it's some, yeah. something else it's it's musicians who were playing for other musicians, obviously. Yeah. And then I went to college and started, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I started to have a bit of a life, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I started yeah. to like hang out with girls. And yeah. just, just that was like, oh, girls listen to music and in a different way. Non-musicians listen to music in a different way. Yeah. And that really just like very, very quickly turned it around. And I realized I really don't want to make music for other musicians. I didn't like the anxiety I felt of yeah. sort of living in a world of music that was very closed and, um, and, and it, but that's because in those days my audience was my own self image and therefore to, to, to play in an advanced complex way gave me a sense of self esteem, I suppose yeah. that I was getting good at something. Uh, but there was no real will to communicate something and yeah. it only happened when I started having a life yeah and that's the thing it's great that i had all those years to become technically good at what i do i'm grateful for it now in some ways because i can deploy it at will in certain ways when i want uh even though i'm not a truly virtuosic musician i can kind of play one on tv so to speak yeah. <laughs> and uh and i see some of those musicians who never quite got out of it and i really do uh, as you say you just sort of in a way feel bad for them you just want to say like take a year off playing music and yeah. just like live a little bit more and you also see it with people who grew up in the classical world and these sort of people who are practicing seven eight hours a day who i also met in classical music school yeah and you just sort of want to say you know your piece will actually sound better if you go out and get drunk tonight yeah, yeah. than if yeah. you practice three yeah. more hours trust me it's, it's the getting drunk tonight will give you something to play about it's fine otherwise those, you're playing about playing yeah yeah it's finding the, those tools and restrictions and it's something that blew me away and I adored on the on the conservatory videos, um, but, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, if anyone's listening now and feeling busy, stick to the end because the conservatory stuff I want to talk is just it's blown me away. It's so ah, oh, it's amazing. We're going to have some good conversation. But at this point, so it had fallen apart with Warner in in Canada, and then you kind of decided to to up and move to Germany. That's right. Now, parallel to all that, a lot of people had always told me. You know, uh, you have to make a choice. Are you a serious musician, yeah, or are you a an entertaining figure, yeah? And it seemed like many people were trying to tell me I had to choose, yeah. And I always thought, 
surely there's a third way. Yeah, yeah. And when I put out my record under the name Sun with yeah. Warner Brothers, I think at that point I by default decided to essentially be a serious musician yeah. because it seemed easier to do that. Yeah. And I just thought, well, indie rock is a pretty serious affair. So I'll just take the easy way and kind of not really do much. I'll sort of don't really show people the the more provocative slash humorous slash performance artist style yeah. and uh, confrontational at times you know the that confrontational kind of, yeah. parts the the self-loathing parts yeah in fact all of that i decided to just basically don't show that let people project onto me the seriousness that yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of indie rock yeah. of the 90s yeah sort of just seems what people want yeah and by default i kind of just decided to try to embrace that but that was the mistake that the, led to this narrative where I didn't really see yeah. myself anymore. When I saw how my music was coming off, I was like, oh, I've actually lost control of it. That was a mistake to step back and just try to fit in. Yeah. The so, kind of the, the, the stance and performance style of the cool kind of indie rock 90s happens to be exactly the same as the stance and performance style of someone who's uncomfortable up there and nervous. So it's that kind of, I'll let them project. I can be up here and not be sure. But that comes across as aloof and and cool and not trying to overperform. That yes, they, but they can decide I'm cool and but, they yes, won't know. And, and it, what it gives you is a chance to say I'm not a calculating pop star. Yeah, and, yeah. and therefore I'm authentic. Mm-hmm. It lets you hide behind that and gives you the chance to rationalize it as I'm going to come off as someone who doesn't seem like they're really trying to be successful. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was what changed when I discovered the late '90s rap. So I'm yeah. very, very late to rap. Yeah. And it was really like Busta Rhymes, yeah. that generation that opened it up for me. Yeah. And I heard the musical playfulness of someone like Busta Rhymes. Yeah. And I realized this is what jazz is today. That was the first time I realized it. So Amazing. I, yeah, I you know, when I was making fun of that, that reporter earlier in the podcast yeah, yeah. who liked blues and jazz but dismissed rap, I guess I was in a way yeah, that until yeah, yeah. I had my conversion. But most of all, more than the music was they didn't choose. They didn't choose between being an entertaining figure and a serious musician. Yeah. They didn't choose between silly and serious. They didn't choose between offensive and pleasing. Yeah. I mean, they really had it all. It was all contradiction, all simultaneity, all the time yeah. in rap. Yeah. And they were not afraid of saying they wanted to be successful. And just jumping into it as well. I always remember on the documentary about... Lil Wayne who is is one of my favourite rappers and it always surprises people because I've done some more highbrow stuff I've worked with some more but I think Lil Wayne's amazing but he had an interview and it was a similar thing where it was I think it was a Guardian reporter or someone and and I'm it, it might have been in Holland, actually. You're talking about the, the Dutch interview? Yes, the Dutch about interview. If he's doing poetry? Who kept saying that he was, a, he was like a jazz musician and he was, yeah. and it was poetry. New Orleans tradition, New Orleans tradition, poetry. Yeah. And he was like, I just rap, I'm just a rap. Yeah, and he, he, he kicks he, him, he out. him out. He ends the interview because the guy was trying to over-intellectualize what, what he was doing, which again is fine to do, but not to then force upon the individual. It's fine to come away as as we've said with with that Iggy Azalea baseline and stuff like that. Go oh, this and this, but you can't then tell the person who made it you meant that. And like, well, no, I was just kind of no. What you're doing is jazz or this or that. It's like no, and yeah, I loved it. It's kind of. No, I just get up and rap. And the guy kept pushing it. And I said he had to end the interview and go... Of, of course. And even musicians, I think, who do calculate more what they do would have a tendency to not want to sort of 
admit it. Yeah. And I've always felt that rappers, no matter how articulate and, you know, and just the vocabulary they deploy yeah. and how they bend language to their will on a regular yeah. basis, and they seem to be purposefully um, going in the opposite direction when they're interviewed. Yeah. As yeah. if to say, yeah, completely. just listen to the song. You know, yeah. as if to say, why are we even here having this interview? Just listen to the song. You yeah, know? completely. That's one of the things I like with rappers as well. However... I think one of the interviews that I saw with Buster Rhymes from that time, he used the word entertainer to describe himself. Yeah. And this clicked. I loved this word because I had this problem. All the people who called themselves artists seemed like they were just like half-assed and kind of like they were the most pretentious, least authentic creative people I'd ever met. And they were using artists as this like capital A artist lifestyle word and everything. And I was like, I don't like this word. I hate it when people use it. And when Busta said entertainer, I said, I'm going to go with that because an entertainer is an artist who's realized that he doesn't exist without the audience. Yeah, 100% that. And and, and that just kind of hearing that that idea in the entertainist album and things like that, it definitely influenced me hugely in my performing career because it was whilst I've got a lot of songs about self harm and suicide and politics, I want everyone who came to this gig to have a good night. I don't want them to have come to a lecture. If if I'm doing a lecture, then that's a different thing. But it's a gig, it's a show, and we were adamant on that from day one that we were putting on a rowdy, sweaty, entertaining show rather than oh, he's got some lyrics that are a bit oh, it'll make you think. You can think about it on the way home. That's right. But in that moment on the night, I don't want you thinking about anything other than enjoying yourself. Yeah, it just so happens the lyrics are about yeah. that, in a way. Yeah, yeah, completely. And that was a, a big realisation f- f- for me, was on the first album. And again, I was I, I got into rap at a reasonable age, but st- st- still late. I grew up on punk, and I grew up on, on, on Indian hardcore and rock and stuff like that. And I got into rap... Tons of different artists, but it was when I'd done my first album, I was like, the message is what's key. I've been listening to a lot of Sage Francis and Saul Williams and people like that, and I was like, the message, the message. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was listening to, to, to Big Daddy Kane and, and Public Enemy and people like, like that properly in KRS-One and going, oh, the message is there, but they've also put the flow in and the pauses and the, and, and, and the bravado and the all-round entertainment rather than just focusing... As long as I get the message there, that's all. So it was, it was finding that, right, let's, let's weave these things t- together. And that, that opened it all up for me, really. Exactly. And if you trust that you will not change the fundamentals of who you are in trying to find where's the connection with the audience, yeah. that's the problem with the people, the capital A artists, is that yeah. they think the minute you think about the audience, you've in some way corrupted yeah. yourself. It's actually the opposite. Yeah, completely. It's like you have created a connection. The most valuable thing possible yeah. is when you create a connection with people. And I, I was trying to think of what I'm going to try to tell the conservatory people about this strange mix of what is discipline and what is the place of discipline in what you do and calculation and what is the place of letting go. Is And I kind of realized... I think I know what it is. And the conservatory forced me to sort of figure it out in a, in a clear way. Discipline and, and studiousness and reverence and respect for those who came before you is what you do when you're alone. Yeah. The minute you have an audience member, whether it's one person up to 100,000, doesn't matter. 
the minute that you're in that mode of needing to create a connection, that's the moment discipline has to go out the window. That's the moment you have to let go. Yeah. So it's actually about which phase of the work you're in. Yeah. I realized when I'm alone, I'm not making music. I'm, in a way, preparing to make music. You know how they say you yeah, don't yeah, ever yeah. actually meditate. You only practice meditation. Right, yeah. In a strange way, performance is not something you can practice. Yeah. And discipline is not something you can perform. Yeah. And so it just became clear to me that, oh, there's a difference between how I think of what I'm doing when I'm alone. That's just being very studious. That's just preparing. That's yeah. just like yeah. due diligence. Yeah. But I'm not actually doing music. Yeah. And the minute there's a person there, it's like, rip up the plan, throw everything out the window, and number one priority, override, prime directive, yeah. make a connection, yeah. and do it quickly, and trust your instincts of how you're going to do that. And that way, you've never corrupted, you have, how could you possibly have corrupted anything? Yeah. Because you're just trusting your instincts. In that moment, you're being the most you that you can possibly be. Yeah, completely. And it's, it's, it's such a simple th- thing, though, because it is that that studiousness put in beforehand that allows you that freedom on stage and a perfect example of that again there's numerous kind of punk bands or kind of cool left field people I could list but Prince is a prime example of that of just having a band who at the drop of the hat he can say are we going to do this song and they'll they'll switch to this funk classic and do that and on the spot and everyone can do that together and they may not play that 25 days in a row on the tour, but they've all got it prepped and in there. So that if they need to call upon it, it's like that. It's simple. I mean, we'll go back to to, 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 to Berlin towards the end, but I need to get into the conservatory now. As we've mentioned it, we I feel we should explain what it is. And it blew me away. I've, I watched um, all eight of the videos um, last night and today. For some, I don't know how I missed it. I, I reckon algorithms have, have played a part in this because, you know, I follow... a a lot of, of what you're up to and it just amazed me it made me think of um have you seen S- slava's S- snow show at all is there's a, a, a russian clown called slava pulinik i think his name is and um i've i've actually helped produce a documentary that's coming out on him and one of the things i saw on that is he's got his place in in france just outside paris that is his kind of it's where he lives, but all of his clowns come there and they practice. And it's this weird world that's just this beautiful... What you see on stage in a theatre, it's, it's, it's in London every Christmas. It's this, Yeah, it's an amazing show. But what you see there on a stage kind of gets to exist in real life and gets to ferment and change and grow. And it made me think of that the first time we approached the conservatory in this. And, and the conservatory... Project, um, yeah, you've picked eight eight musicians from around the world. I know in the video you had Jarvis Cocker, Peaches, and so called helping you kind of select these people. And then it's a um, eight day, all expenses paid kind of school yeah, as such. It's, it's, how did yeah. it come about? And explain it. I'm stumbling over it and realizing that you probably know how to explain this. <laughs> well, for a while, I've I've had this, you know. Uh, it started back when I first put out the solo piano record, and I thought, how do I perform this? I'm not sure I feel right just playing an entire recital on the piano without yeah. talking. Yeah. And I started to sort of share some of these little little fun discoveries that made music so playful for me 
like the difference between major and minor. And I would do a little routine where I would play some songs that are normally in a major key in a minor key. Yeah. Like, you know, you play Chariots of Fire, for example. Yeah. It, you know, da, yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah. And a minor key, suddenly it's like... Suddenly it's like... Poland, 1940s, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, and I was like, oh, this is a, this is a funny way for me to show people that music is kind of a toy that you can take apart and figure out how it works a little yeah. bit. And it also makes people in a way laugh nervously because they're sort of like, music has this crazy emotional power over me. And yet it's just this one simple note. It's just a semitone difference that completely changes it. It's almost unnerving. For the audience, I think that's why they laugh. It's yeah. not just entertaining. It's sort of like, what the hell? How yeah. is this emotional thing that I feel, this connection to music that's followed me my whole life, how is it possible that in the end it's just a matter of where the finger is kind of yeah, moment? Yeah. And I noticed that people kept on saying, I love it when you sort of talk, explain that stuff. And and then I did a, a series called Pop Music Masterclass, which we talked about, yeah. which are these sort of deconstructions of pop songs. Then I did a book for lapsed piano players called Reintroduction Etudes. That's for people who had done one or two years of piano and had sort of wanted to get back into it as adults. Yeah. And that was basically my audience coming up to me saying, I want to play again. You make me want to play again. But I, oh, I had a shitty teacher, blah, 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 blah. I, and I made I, this book for them. And that book was like basically like triple platinum in the sheet music world. You wow. Know? It's like a huge success. That's amazing. And, and the kind of letters I got was like game changing. You know, it's like I've wanted to play piano for 30 years and only your book was the only thing that made it possible. I'm playing every day now. And, and I was like, I want, I want more of this. I want to feel more of these like life changing sort of reactions yeah. rather than just, Hey man, cool album. Yeah. completely. And, and I was like chasing that, you know, and I was then, then it was really the, 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 the double whammy, honestly, of, of Brexit and Trump. And at the end of 16, I was like, I'd taken a sabbatical year and I was kind of hoping to come up with the big sabbatical idea. Yeah. And around really mid-November of that year, I was like, how do I create positive energy in a realistic way? You know, a lot of people yeah. are like, I'm just going to quit doing music and I'm going to like, and I'm like, that's not realistic for me. I, yeah. I, I have to use what I know how to do to create positive energy. Yeah, 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 and that's yeah. when I had the idea to, to do the conservatory. And I thought there's one thing that nobody seems to be teaching. And yet it's the easiest thing if you master it to guarantee that you can make a living as a musician which yeah. is the stuff we're talking about yeah making yeah. a connection on stage yeah so i thought let me see if i can sort of retrace my steps that made me the performer i am today and i will retro engineer that and i will make these eight people relive what took me 15 years to happen by accident because yeah. i met this person because i made this decision i had this failure I'm going to just like compress that into eight days and they will essentially relive my 15 years yeah. of accidental research and maybe get closer to where I am yeah. in terms of performance. You know, performance is what music was since the cavemen and cave women started, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Then there's this weird aberration called recording that just came along. It's like all of a sudden it's like, no, no, no. There's a permanent record. There's official versions of songs now. Yeah. Before that, there never were. I mean, when Chopin had to write down the sheet music for like a waltz, it was painful for him to think, oh, come on, I play this thing differently every fucking time. Yeah. Depends yeah. who's in front of me. Sometimes it's five minutes long. Sometimes it's two. I, sometimes I play this octave. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's fast. Am I really meant to say, like, here's the tempo market? And, here's the length of this piece? And, and, you know, and anyone who's released an album is going to have experienced 
that, that as well. As soon as you're touring it after that, you some years later you'll hear the original <laughs> version. You're like, I didn't know that's how that song went because you don't. I don't personally put my own records on and, li- and listen to it again. So it's one of them. It's kind of like, oh wow, that's how it goes because it changed so much along that's that right. time. Again, it's the illusion that the recording of the album. The, the illusion put forward these days that you record the album and that's the finishing point. But again, it's another starting point. Exactly yeah. right. And and now that then that aberration of recording is somehow, it's still around obviously, yeah. but it also kind of splintered apart in some other ways. Yeah. And that gives us an opportunity to reconnect with what music was for the thousands of years until then. Yeah. Performance. And in a very pragmatic way, if you want to make money as a musician... Become a good performer. That can sustain you if you work on it because the audience will come back. That's one thing that can't be replicated digitally is the performance. So actually, to to become a good performer in 2018 means you're in touch with the flow of what music was for thousands of years. So in a spiritual sense, you're much closer to like the the sweet, sticky center of music uh, at the same time. I'm like going to give you like the tools to like actually make money and make a living in this yeah. thing. And that's when I realized, okay, I have to do it. And then when I came up with the name, the conservatory, it was done yeah. deal. You know, when you have a name for something, yeah. it's like, now you have to do it. It all writes it's, itself after that. But it was, it's it beautiful to, to, to witness because it was interesting to hear you say there that you kind of look back and deconstructed the chance situations that led to where you were. Cause that was, that was an amazing Thing I liked on, on on one of the episodes, you spoke of of, of 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 what you called songing, and you kind of just just literally said to people, "Start playing a song now about it's called Red." Was one of the examples. Go. That's right. And then you have to play it, and then it's there on the spot, and it's and you were saying that's how how you and, and Feist wrote a particular song and stuff like that. It's like the restrictions put on people at times. Yeah, com- completely bring stuff that number one wouldn't have happened if you'd had more time to contemplate or think about it, or the more time you've got to contemplate and think about it, the more you're not doing it. The more you're sitting there going, "I'd like to do something like this," and you c- can genuinely lose months or, or years of I've got I've I've had this idea in the back of my well, how head. How about like I'm going to build a studio? Yeah, oh, yeah. How many musicians have lost two years to building a studio? Completely, How's completely, that? exactly. And it's it, <laughs> it, it's all these ideas that it's this it's it's putting up so many boundaries so I don't actually have to start doing it yet. And the beautiful thing there was again that was just one approach that you showed, but it showed that some things will work and some things won't work, and just. Go with it. Yeah, but with songing, what's interesting is um, I got them to think of song titles in advance and yeah. to put five song titles each into a hat. So there were 40 right. song titles. I just said, I want song titles that don't exist yet. Whatever yeah. they are, do them. And we had everything. It was like one called Fuck You. It was one called Me. There yeah. was one called Red. Yeah. There was some very poetic ones like The Bird Falling from the Sky. It was, yeah, yeah. It was really every kind of song title. We literally put them in a hat and I would just pick one out and point to a new pair of musicians or a new group of three or sometimes solo. And we did those 40 songs. I mean, because there's no rehearsal time and each song is about a minute and a half, a Tierra Whack level of sort of musical haiku, you know, sort of like just essentially one or two ideas looking for some truth. And at the end of two hours... We had done all 40 songs and it was like, all right, guys, it's time for lunch. We just wrote 40 songs. And the idea was they should go to bed that night and just be going, 
I can't believe that I just spontaneously wrote nine songs. That even if one or two of those turns yeah. out to be an idea that they would then finish, and then finishing a song, yeah, of course. Then I understand you can take months. I mean, my solo piano three record that's coming in September. Yeah, I, I of course I essentially was songing each time I came up with the initial idea. You know, usually at sound check or playing a new piano. That tends yeah. to be where I'll come up with something new. And then I sort of just put it in my phone, and there's a, there's a, the piano equivalent of songing, and then. I work on them for like a year and a half until they're really ready. So, yeah. but the spark of it has to be in a moment where yeah. you have zero conscious thought and maximum amount of just trusting your instincts. And yeah. it just takes someone like me who they trust yeah. to sort of create that space and be able to do that. And again, it's such a weird thing. I don't know why a little Wayne keeps coming up into my mind, but again, it's such a thing that for certain people that, approach is just a natural thing i remember when i, I got into little, little wayne is when he would have five or six mixtapes out a year and i think it was xl had the top 100 little wayne songs of this year so literally it's like he'd put so many out and that was the thing you'd sift through and there'd be some awful shit on there and then there'd just be some absolute gold and his thing at that point was he never wrote anything down he had his ideas and then he'd go in the booth he'd have a, a portable mic or whatever and he'd go in and and rap and again that's he's then releasing all of it which maybe isn't the correct choice but again it's that it's that thing of finding that just like any muscle work it out and work it out and work it out and then it develops and grows so as so how did it all go from the as an idea of the conservatory how was it then to kind of to get the submissions to start realizing it was a reality and then to select and then yeah, have them exactly. all kind of I come mean designing out. the process was just such a such a massive project in itself and thinking how do they apply what do i need to see to know because to recreate what made me the performer i am a big part of that was making music with friends so yeah. how am i to choose people so that they will become friends that's like a pretty crazy heavy lift yeah and i sort of realized i have to think about a group of eight people yeah. rather than pick the eight best people. Yeah. I'm not picking eight individuals. I'm picking a group of eight. Yeah, you're that was the first, team, yeah. first sort of eureka moment. Okay. That's fantastic. Now that I'm picking a group, now all of a sudden, because if you just pick the eight best people, then it's anyone's guess if they're going to get along. Mm. So, of course, people with weaknesses, strengths, making sure there's not too many people who are... Uh, already extroverted and fearless on stage. Yeah, yeah. Making sure there's people who are already good performers, but also people who are performers in a way that maybe isn't the same way I'm a good performer. Yeah. That they're inside the music, for example. Yeah. And they'll be able to show some of the fearless people yeah. how to be inside the music. And uh, so once I had that in mind, it became a little bit easier to try to figure out the group. And you really had this like whiteboard with, you know, a bunch of names and like, what would it look like if it was these eight people? Yeah. What would it look like? If, okay. And in fact, there were seven. Yeah. You said eight. Yeah, I yeah. Remember. I was I thinking eight that. days. That's so why. In I fact, first I announced six. Right. And I couldn't get it to a group of six I liked. Right. It just felt <laughs> too symmetrical. Seven, yeah. It felt too much like a, like, 
three guys, three yeah. girls. Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. Of course. of course, yeah. And uh, I ended up sort of finally having seven. I remember calling my management. I said, okay, now that we know where they're flying in from, maybe our budget will be okay that we have seven because yeah. I thought we only budgeted for six. Yeah. And it was 80% self-financed and financed through the concerts of the conservatory themselves. Wow. We tried getting sponsors, but at some point I don't want to – there's diminishing returns of putting an effort to ask for money. Yeah. And I have concerts. Yeah. I play sold-out concerts in Europe all the time. So I yeah. had benefit concerts. Yeah. I had 4,000 people coming in two shows uh, in Dusseldorf at a big classical hall there. And we generated like 65 grand, which was yeah. a third of what we needed. And and um, and so finally when I realized we could afford seven, I had yeah, we can make it work. group. Yeah. And, and had like the natural musician you know, who like lives in the countryside and literally doesn't have a cell phone. Yeah. And then I had like Fat Tony, who's like this Houston rapper. Yeah, he was amazing. Know, who's like, who's like the minute there was a camera, he was like singing right into the camera. Yeah. Like a real slick pro yeah. American, a real American yeah. musician who sort of was already a great entertainer, but sort of needed something else to sort yeah. of, you know, and everyone and to had witness, a great skill. To, to witness other processes as, yeah. as well. If you're, the, if, you, if, if you're that kind of person who's felt they've come naturally to this, I'm doing it, here's how I do it, to see that someone else can be equally as impactful in absolute silence on a chair right. playing a classical guitar and, 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 and things like that is, that's a lesson for everyone to take on board. Well, yeah, and that dovetails a bit with the whole idea of what I'm saying is musical humanism is the idea that there's more in common than separates yeah. us in, yeah. in terms of musical style. So yeah. that's why I chose as many different musical backgrounds as possible. Yeah. You mentioned this very quiet classical guitar player who yeah. writes her own music. And, yeah. Um, she's French, French Nigerian named Aitua, and in her video, she did some really playful stuff. She interviewed herself, and she yeah. sort of, she sort of had this way of sort of abstracting herself, and yet she'd never applied that to her music before she yeah. applied for the conservatory. Yeah. And during that week, she really blossomed because she integrated that sort of provocative sort of arty side that she'd never been able to really put to her and music because she was classically at certain points when she was kind of shouting rather than singing it was so powerful breaking free yeah exactly it wasn't someone I always remember the the Ian McKay um, minor threat and and discord records quote of I'd rather hear the music of four people who have something to say but don't know how to to, don't have the technical skill to say it than four people who know exactly how to say everything and can just and it it felt exactly like, like that in one area on her guitar she could say anything she wanted in the world. And in the other area, it was brand new to her. And the, right. the screaming it rather than beautifully singing along to, to, to these beautiful things was, yeah, it felt amazing. It felt free. Yeah, and that's why I was, I'm trying to get every single one of those people to understand what part of what they do is mastery yeah. and what part is like the childlike wish fulfillment. Yeah. And like, like I said, which part is the pianist? Yeah. Which part is the provocative rapper, you know? Yeah. And to recreate that and make them be friends, maybe I fluked out, but yeah. it happened very, very quickly. And yeah. they really became a real group. And when Peaches came yeah. and she saw those videos, she saw who I was leaning towards, she said, You're picking people that remind you of your favorite musical friends. She's like oh, wow. she's like Dadalu, the Chilean, very arty, yeah. fearless performer. She's like, Dadalu reminds you of me. And 
uh, the Lady, the jazz sax player, reminds yeah. you of Maki. Yeah. And Frida wow. Split, the natural one with no cell phone, reminds me of this other bass player who we played with in our band, The Shit, the punk yeah. band we had. Yeah. And I was like, I think you're right. I'm essentially, you know, I'm just kind of recreating that whole process. Yeah. But strangely, maybe even recreating the types. And those are all the musicians who make me, you know. But it's the beauty of watching it work with, with you recreating it in some way intentionally. When in your life it was lived out, complete chance meetings. So going, right, I'm going to, even if you weren't conscious of the, 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 the similarities of people, the chance meetings that, that you'd had you're holding on to the ones that worked and rejecting the ones that didn't work and going, right, it worked when this person met this and this person worked with this person. That's and, right. And putting it all together. Um, how did you decide what kind of t- a teacher you, you were going to be? Because it's well, a tough one because you've, 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 you've got s- some of your skill from strict grandparents kind of harshness. You must learn, you must teach. You've got another area from the freedom... Of, of the Berlin music scene and the European music scene and, and people like Peaches are a prime example of just literally say anything you want however you want perform it be you be as outrageous as you as you choose to be or as as, as timid as you choose to be and right. so you've then got to decide so who is who is Gonzales or who is Gonzo the teacher who is Mr. Gonzo so how was that to kind of come about well I realized I wasn't interested in getting them to conform to my musical taste or Mm -hmm. even to a lesser extent my taste of what things look like on stage I'm pretty snobby about performance yeah I see a lot of errors when I watch friends of mine play or just randomly see a show completely I'm like oh god don't don't bend over and work on your your pedals put your pedals somewhere where you don't have to bend over I just saw the top of your underwear dude no little things like that that's like the monologue in my head when I watch a show you know completely so I think I was pretty hardcore with some of that stuff Um, but musically especially I didn't want them to have to conform to my taste so I would never say here's a cool chord you can play instead I would say I have the feeling that you're repeating the chord progression a little too monotonously. I think you should choose two or three moments in the song. I'm not going to tell you where. Change one of the chords to something else. And let's see if that makes it better. That's sort of something you can think about tonight when we play it tomorrow. Let's hear how you sort of took that. And I think that's a much better approach than me going and saying, here's the fucking dope chord to play. Um, So it's a little bit of this give a man a fish yeah, you know, teach him how to fish. Yeah, I definitely was on some teach him how to fish when it came to the music. However, when it came to the stage, basic stage things, I, I was very quick to sometimes say, like, you know, when you walk on stage like that, it's sending a message. So I'm not going to tell you how to walk on stage, but right now the message I'm getting is that you don't give a shit. Yeah. So is that what you want? That can be something. Yeah. I just want you to be conscious right now that yeah. the, what you're giving off is I don't give a shit. To be aware I don't give of a shit can be your brand. It's no yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I sort of come on stage in a certain way that I feel is going to benefit my show yeah. to, to the best of my ability and sort of 
make people comfortable. That's sort of yeah. I start from a place of making people comfortable so that I can start to fuck with them later on. Yeah. I don't yeah, start yeah, yeah. off confrontational. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I gotta reel them in. That's me. Yeah. That's yeah. the Chili Gonzalez method. What's your method? So it's I've seen people come on in a in a way that like sets the awkwardness and the, the ill vibe right away. Yeah. That can be really cool to stumble on stage and to not give a shit. But just be aware that you're doing it and it's, um, it's great to have that outside outside insight and and vision and to be in a position where you're not being a dick for pointing out these things do you, do you know what I mean so like, like I, I, I drove and tour managed for a couple of bands on my label once because um, they were small releases and it was like I'll support I'll do that I'm off this month and I could never do it again and it wasn't because I didn't like the driving or I didn't like this it's just some people do things differently and I'm sitting there like I mean, I know sound checks in a minute or two. I wouldn't be going to get some food or a coffee. I'd be, I'd be preparing for what's about, and then dinner. Is, but it's not my place because it's not my tour. I'm just there to help there, out. There was a moment, but where... it was one of them where I'm like, oh, I, there was so many times I wanted to tell people I'm going. That's not how I do it. But again, that's that's just I'm I'm similar that I'm meticulous on my tour. No, you were right. You were yeah, right. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> and, and and you were right. If they want to improve and grow and get yeah. better and have better shows, sure, they might not want to do that. And then yeah. in that case, you're not right. Again, it's fine to want to just go and enjoy the enjoy it. Of for, course, of for course. what it is at the time, of course. Yeah, but but I'm guessing if they were bothering to go on tour in the first place, yeah. they want to grow it and make it yeah, better yeah, and have yeah, better yeah. shows. There was a moment in one of the songs where um, one of the conservatorians wanted there to be like kind of an acapella major chord that they sang at the end of the song. Yeah, and so we kind of put that together in the rehearsal. And then there was like three or four days before the final show. And I sort of realized that, you know, they didn't seem to be rehearsing it. And it's like, in my mind, I was like, oh. And so I said to them, you know, like, hey, guys, you know, in four days, you're going to have to sing that chord, like, in front of a thousand people and a live streaming audience. And so far, you've only ever done it when we've actually run the piece. But, like, yeah. when you guys are walking home at night, like, you could be really working on that major chord, yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah, make yeah. sure that it's like... When it comes out, it's going to be amazing. Perfect. And they were like sort of nodding their heads, you know. And then it came to a kind of dress rehearsal, which was actually a gig in a little shitty bar yeah. before the big concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to do that. And they really fucked up the chord, you know. Oh, wow. And the next day we were going over it. And I was like, what do you guys think about uh, the moment of the, the last chord, the, the sung a cappella major chord? And they kind of just were, and I was like, it was bad last night, right? Like, do you guys think it was bad or good? And they're like, no, no, it was bad. And I was like, remember what I told you four days ago? Yeah. Like, I'm just kind of surprised. I'm even surprised that you weren't doing it this morning when I arrived. Like, yeah. you know, it's only going to make you look bad and all this. And so in that moment, it's I, I'm not chastising them either, but it's just that feeling of like sort of the head shaking. You know, there's also yeah. a moment where... I told him at the beginning, please research all the visiting professors. Yeah. You know, if you happen to not know who Jarvis Cocker is, because yeah. you're a Ukrainian jazz sax player, look it up. Yeah. So that you know you can maximize your benefit from it. Yeah. And then on the fourth day, Fred Wesley is coming. Fred Wesley, god of funk. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I, uh, just 10 minutes before, I went up to the drummer vibraphonist yeah. of the, one of the conservatorians, an Austrian guy who yeah. lives in Berlin. And I said, dude about to play drums for Fred Wesley like are you shitting your pants or are you excited you know and he was kind of like gave me this look and I was like do you know who Fred Wesley is and he shook his head and I said you have 10 minutes to google dude like what the fuck are you doing yeah. here 
what are you doing? Like, and that was one of the best exchanges as well because he gave one of the best bits of advice that just killed me when when Fred just said to the a drummer, you need to play it with more attitude. And just as he started, he went, that doesn't mean louder. And it was just perfect. but not yeah, aggressive, louder. that's it. But play it more aggressively. And he's like, that doesn't mean louder. And he's like, perfect. Because again, on an initial reaction, play it more aggressive, you could kind of sense that he was like, all right, I'm ready to smash the shit out of this. And then just quickly, that doesn't mean louder. He's like, oh, right, okay. And that was just an amazing, just little thrown away bit of wisdom that but, yeah. but do you think it matters do you think it matters that they would research the people before because I some think people you'd, you'd to want me. to to get the most out but again it's different personalities I, I would want to because I'd want to yeah to get the most out of it with the, the podcast for example I generally have people on I know a lot about already but even if I don't I tend to do all my research on the day or the night before because I want as you, you may have noticed I'm, I'm not looking at my notes. I want to have made sure that anything that's extra that's new to me, I'm fucking excited to be talking. Like, I've watched the conservatory stuff in the last uh, uh, last 24 hours. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm buzzing to talk about this. It's not kind of, I researched it earlier in the month and, and who is it, it today? So it's it's different techniques and approaches on that. But yeah, I definitely think... That's the thing. I want to check myself a little bit and think, is. am I just being this guy who's like, oh, you damn millennials don't know your elders. Like, I didn't know if I was being in a way... And I thought maybe for the future... Maybe it doesn't really matter if they know who they are. I just sort of think, and Fred Wesley will never know who Googled him and who didn't, yeah, and yeah, Jarvis yeah, yeah, will yeah, know. Of course, of course. So no one will know in a way except for me. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Rudolf Steiner is this um, German philosopher from the like 18 somethings. So yeah. I'm not even positive exactly when he was around. But he essentially invented this philosophy that led to the creation of Waldorf schools. Yeah. Which are these schools where it's a little bit more this teach them how to fish rather than give them a fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it essentially creates a space for kids to explore what they're good at and learn from the other kids. And it's just a less top-down approach to teaching. Yeah. And that was a big inspiration for me. And Completely. if I apply that to, well... How much should they have researched each teacher, you know? And, and that's why it, I griped a bit about it. And I was a bit like these damn millennials. But in the end, I kind of also some friends said, what difference really does it make yeah. whether they knew who Fred Wesley was? Because they could just sense his authority from the minute that he yeah. started talking and working with them. Uh, so there's definitely room for me to also improve that Professor it's Gong's balance, role. isn't it? Because that's know? it. It is... All that aside, it is still being presented as eight days at, at school. It's a school. So they're, they're, it's okay to have some kind of, well, we're not here to just mess about. It's, that's part of the, the teaching approach, but that's not. it's still school. So you should maybe have, have, have learned this or learned that. I, so I can so, understand like, both sides of that. When Jarvis started talking, I, you know, first they came upstairs and I was like, guys, get your books. Yeah. And they went and got their like little Chili Gonzalez Chambers notebooks that we that, nice. that was like our merch from three years ago that we gave Brilliant, them. Yeah. And then Jarvis was talking and I was like, No one's taking notes. Yeah. If before I met Jarvis, if I'd had a chance to watch a lecture, I'd write some things down. Yeah, you yeah. know. That's me and and you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so I'm still trying to work on this as you said, who is Professor Gonzo yeah. in this context? And you know, I'm gonna do the conservatory every year. I Amazing. wanna grow it, I wanna tweak it. I want to figure out the, the parts that are the most fun for me. and um, But in general, 
every morning I spent about 20 minutes to half an hour with each of them because part of the concert at the end was duos between me and each of them. Yeah. And that was kind of the moment for me to rehearse that with them was also a conversation about how is this for you? Do you feel like you're being pushed the right amount? Too much? Yeah, too little? Great. They all liked how hard they were being pushed, but they all said it was much more serious than they expected when they signed up for it. Yeah. But they loved it. Yeah. That, again, that's a good thing. It's, 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 it's pushing outside of your comfort zone, which I think is is the key there. I always enjoyed the quote, and it's t- I hate it when I've got quotes but don't know who they're by, but just in regards to school systems in general, teach them how to think and not what to think. And I think that's absolutely the key. And it goes to the Waldorf approach and all that, which is absolutely. just is perfect. So uh, where did the conservatory all take place? Was that It happened uh, at the end of April. Yep. And it began with a convocation concert where they were on stage the first time I met them. Yeah. They were like sitting on couches and I kind of performed in a way for them yeah. and for a theater audience and for a streaming audience at home. That's wow. three audiences yeah. that night. yeah. And I showed excerpts from their application videos and related it to my my own story. So I would yeah. say, this is the moment I learned that that making music with friends is the most important because you never feel like you're working. Yeah. And then I sort of said, and this is what I saw in Dadalu, the arty girl from yeah. Chile, yeah, Chile, yeah, yeah. and the one who Peaches said it probably was yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a stand-in for her. Um, and then I had classical training, but I needed to break out of it. And that's why I needed to have one classically trained musician who I can tell wants to break out. Yeah. And then it was Aitua, the classical guitarist. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of told my story. Amazing. And that's when I sort of realized, yeah, I'm retro-engineering what happened yeah. to me, uh, to them, and that they're each somehow a piece of me. Yeah. And uh, and then we had the, the full eight days, and we would basically spend the mornings doing these duo rehearsals which the others could observe if they wanted or not they were still in the public space so to speak and then we did these things called musical push-ups which were these time constraint or um, heavily engineered exercises like songing sometimes it was go off for 10 minutes literally giving them egg timers you have 10 minutes to come up with a two-part song the first part will only have two notes in it the second part you can add a third note yeah and let's see what each of you come up with. And so these kinds of exercises that were just basically there to, you know, I remember this one time, my brother, the film composer, here and there, he would throw me jobs, especially when I was like just a lowly lingerie store piano player. And he was already a successful film composer. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm working on music for a film. And they want a Sonic Youth song, but they can't afford it. They want a Sonic Youth ripoff. Do you know Sonic Youth? And I'm like, yeah, vaguely. And so I would like make 500 bucks to like go to my four track and I would listen to a bunch of Sonic Youth and I would like try to do my version of a Sonic yeah, Youth song. Yeah. And I would always be amazed. It still sounded so much like me. Yeah. I would yeah, never yeah, be yeah. able to properly imitate Sonic Youth except that I was maybe using some different instruments, yeah. of course, yeah. trying to like, oh, how do I make feedback out of this little lamp? And, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it always sounded like me. And I thought I never would have tried this if I didn't have this crazy external reason to try it. And I discovered something about myself. Yeah. So you always need to be pushing yourself. And 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 the, the hardest thing to do, the closest thing to musicians' writer's block is when everything seems possible. Yeah. But when only a few avenues seem possible, in those constraints, you find freedom. It's the principle of S&M, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Completely. <laughs> and, That's perfect. And really, and, and that was what musical push-ups were. It was just a series of abstracted ones. 
you know, go off and make a song that's with the theme sweat. Yeah. And that was very abstract, you yeah, know, it could yeah, be anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it was as specific as two notes in the first part, yeah. three notes in the second part. And those are the parts of the conservatory that were by far the most fascinating to me. And when I continue to do it, I'm going to allow for more time for that. Yeah. And, and what they didn't realize they were doing is they were writing the show that they were going to play at the end of the week. Yeah. And I told them on the fourth day, okay, guys, we have three days to put the show together now. Guess what? You're going to pick the best of all the musical push-ups and all the songing exercises. I want you guys to come up with your ultimate pool of tunes. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about set list construction later tonight. You know? Amazing. And then in the evenings, there was a guest master class yeah. where there was Jarvis. One night, we went to see Thomas Bangalter from Daft Punk in his right. studio. Yeah. Yeah. The cameras wow. weren't allowed there, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Uh, and we had Peaches and uh, Lisa, who is the singer of a group called Ebei, these two right. Cuban twins that do... Uh, a kind of beautiful, yeah, a kind of Cuban hip-hop, R&B thing. And they're great. People should yeah. check them out. Yeah, I need to make a, and, uh, a note of them. She, uh, see, you're taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not um, meant to. I'm meant to be working. she's 23 or 24 years old, and they, they just signed to XL two albums ago, and they oh, kind wow. of blew up. And I was really happy to have someone who's their age, even younger than some of the students that were there, yeah. who's like speaking about things that are just really far away from me now. Again, it all comes into, uh, in any school situation, it helps when there's not just your teachers that you can't relate to. You can respect the teachers, but there is always going to be a, a, a boundary of, of relating. So it helps to have people who can come in and go... And even contradict me. Mate. Yeah, yeah, completely. Then they yeah. can choose. Jarvis did a beautiful masterclass that was all about um, uh, lyric writing, and I, I was really learning a lot from it. Um, he talks about this Nick Cave line that has the word frappuccino in it, but the word frappuccino is not the rhyme that not the line that rhymes. Right. And and then he compares it with a line from a song by ABC, yeah. where there's a really crazy word I can't Picasso I think yeah. it is, but it rhymes with lasso. Yeah. And he was saying how the the word Picasso loses power because it rhymes with lasso because you're always lying in wait waiting for what the rhyme is. Yeah. And the, what makes the Nick Cave line works so well and it's so fresh is that the word frappuccino is so out of context but it's not prepared for it you don't set it up yeah, by a yeah. rhyme that comes before it whereas they kind of waste the picasso line in the abc song yeah, because they've lasso before it i had never thought about it and i'm a yeah. student of rap and yeah. thought that i thought about this stuff deeply but i you know there were really these moments where i was really learning peaches her master class was just rehearsing with them she came near the end because i knew that she's can like be like a director. Yeah. I left them alone with Peaches for five hours while they performed the concert that they were going to perform wow. a few days later. Because I thought, even I'm too close to it at this point because I was there when yeah. these songs were written yeah, and now, yeah, yeah. now they need someone totally different. And she just took over as a kind of theater director, dramaturgically telling them like, you know, who is this song for? Why did you write this song? Do you want to look someone in the eyes in the audience and fix them in the eyes? You know, we've all done that. Yeah, we just yeah, like yeah. pick that one audience yeah. member and decide to like go deep in their yeah, eyes. Completely. And, or do you want to look, do you want to sort of just be looking up into the ceiling at no one in particular and singing the song? Do you want to get a mirror as a prop on stage and sing the song to yourself? And she just presented eight possible options of how you can sing this love song. Yeah. And it blew my mind to think wow, she's also showing them, and they'll think of a ninth, 10th, maybe 11th option. Yeah. She came the next day and she said, I think I want to sing the song with a drink in my hand. And I was like, perfect. 
Peach just did her job. She didn't yeah. tell her to do it with a drink in her hand, but she showed her all these other examples that led her to think, what's my version of that? And that's the bits which are amazing on the craft. I, when I did um, an Edinburgh a Fringe show, it was all spoken word. Um, and I hadn't thought about the fact that I've never done a gig in the same room with the same lights and the same setup and the same stage. And this was, I think, 19 nights in a row, essentially, with two days off. And I thought, I'm going to get bored. It's going to be hard to keep performance. It was quite the opposite because it got to give me that that over-analysis, that outside analysis of, right, I now know every inch of this specific stage and I could have it. So after the second or third show, I had all the spotlights, all the lights kind of in my eyes, which meant I could give a real focused, direct performance to... My nan, who died a few years ago, because I can't see who's actually there. I can't see anyone who's actually... I can focus on someone's eyes, and it will be someone, because that's how stages and audiences work. And I could do all these different things that I'd never been able to do before, because you're changing venue, changing where the lighting is, changing where there's a bump in the stage or whatever else. But having that restriction of, I'm here for all these shows in a row... At least a few details for yeah. the first eighteen nights. Yeah, completely. Right? Yeah, yeah. I ended, it's, it's 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 the weirdest thing because it's the only concert I ever ended up a recording and doing a, a video of, and it, it literally came because about ten or eleven nights in, I rang my mate and said, "Look, this particular show is never going to get better than this because I know that I know like I literally all the pauses, all the bits where I I lose control were now completely." It sounds bad to say contrived, but they would. I had it set up, so that was the point that I could allow that moment. And yeah, it was those things that 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 just just, just happened by chance. But it gave me that chance to to hone and break apart my own performance rather than everyone else's. I go and see. And Does that become something you can reuse in other venues and say, yeah, "Oh, yeah. I learned that trick." Okay, put the lights in my face. I don't want to actually see the audience completely. And it and it really it, it gave me. I did that actual show in a few different places. And it, again, it was better than it would have been if I hadn't done those nights because it made me, again, after f- f- four nights, I've got this room nailed. I know everything. So then I'm completely internal on the performance alone rather than, is that an exit light over there or is that the bar over there? There's no distractions by this point because I've figured the room out after four or five nights. So yeah, it's amazing. Uh, to have those things but what I loved about the the conservatory is it felt it felt incredibly European and uniquely European so I mean we're we're almost at 90 minutes so I'll start to wrap things up but what kind of drew you to Europe and what changed when you got here because it, it it does feel like your musical life in in Canada was the groundwork was the building block that everything was built on but it was getting out of there that made it all suddenly click and pop and seem to make everything change. Yes, I would say that my music is so much about European music, especially since I started to play piano so much and sort of refer to classical music and use the sort of iconography of the classical virtuoso to yeah. kind of you know play the virtuoso on tv as i yeah, always yeah, say yeah, yeah, yeah. um to sort of incarnate that and update it and sort of show well to rap as a virtuosic piano player makes sense because when people think of these flamboyant pianists whether it's franz Liszt who was the sort of first 
real, um, I guess, musical personality, musical right. celebrity, yeah, yeah. who understood the power of the storytelling and the context, and that if you if if you have a rumor spreading around that you're possessed by the devil and that's why you're such a great piano virtuoso yeah. that can only help yeah he sort of encouraged that kind of uh marketing of his music yeah. and thought it would only add to it yeah. he was actually the first person to actually play an entire piano concert for two hours by himself oh wow up till then people thought you can't do that you need to have variety you need to have different musicians coming on yeah. different instruments different colors you can't do that mr list course he was like just watch me just, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and that in a way leads up to and maybe it's most caricatural version is something like liberace maybe yeah where it's like extremely flamboyant and he's yeah, just like but you know it's 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 no accident that you hear rappers literally referencing liberace yeah very very often yeah, in, in yeah. their lyrics because uh, it's that same level of of sort of being larger than life yeah and at the same time creating intimacy it's why i think wrestling finds its way into rap lyrics a lot as well wrestling? i'm into wrestling yeah oh. wrestling, but it's exactly the same so it's, into it's, wrestling it's, too. it's that flamboyance and that yeah. the, it's another one that you can, can, can watch it on one level and it's this flamboyance and then yeah. if you want to go deeper there's storytelling there's yeah, everything but sadly else it can be used for evil because trump also used his time yeah. in wrestling yeah. as an <laughs> extremely key part of what he does yeah it's yeah very uh very under Underappreciated, completely. So I feel like my music is about European music, and to show European music as I see it to Europeans has a very special effect, and that's why I've really struck a chord—no pun (laughs) um, intended—with European audiences. I can do it in Canada too; it's just European enough that I think it works. But there's still moments where I'll have a really good show in in Canada, and I'll get home and I'll still have a little suspicion, like. They didn't really get it. Yeah. It went and really well, but and America, forget it. What I do in America does not work. It's to do with say, but that's it's a- to do with the rapping perhaps yeah. and their sort of reverence for the sort of origin story of rap and yeah. and uh and maybe a bunch of other uh, more strategic errors of the actual way that I presented myself there. I'll never really know why, but I put in a lot of effort to try to find my audience there. And it never really worked. And my audience there is, you know, other musicians, of course, know me. And, and, you know, a certain kind of creative person will probably know what I do, but it doesn't compare. I don't play in concert halls for 2,000 people in America. It's fascinating. But I think it's also a really important point in everyone's career when they realize that the important thing is finding your audience not trying to find everyone and again I, I, I always remember on on my second album that because the first album had had some daytime play on Radio 1 the label was like we need to get daytime play on Radio 1 and I realised quite quick that my music in the in the daytime on Radio 1 is probably going to be the low light of a lot of people's day on Radio 1 because it's not that kind of music it's in between two songs that aren't like that whereas when Zane Lowe played it in an evening on his radio show, then that that was the home for it. That was where the ears that wanted to hear it were going to find it. And it was that that realisation of why chase... Because, again, artistically, I'd never change anything to reach a bigger audience. But as yeah, soon as the artistic... We're, tra- we're trained to shoot for the moon, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as the artistic part was over, it was like, we need to do anything we can to right. get right to the top. It's like, well, if that was the truth, I would have been thinking about that when I was... 
creating the music and I wasn't. I was creating that artistically for what it was meant to be. Now it's okay to continue that on into the rest of the process and yes. enjoy it. Yeah. In, in Europe, they get what I'm doing. They're, they're the right place. I, I heard a, a, a Frankie Boyle recently talking about oh God, comedy. I love him. He's brilliant. Bless him. Oh. He's wonderful. And he was talking about, because on Russell Brand's podcast, he was asking him about how he feels about when stuff he said has been controversial and offended people. And he's kind of said, I don't mind because it's not my intention to offend people, but that piece of material was for those people in that room at that point. And his example was when alternative comedy was at its, its, its biggest with the young ones and whatever else, that was still probably, I mean, pushing it, let's say five or six million of, of viewers. And that's probably exaggerated on TV. That means there's a few billion who weren't into it. They're now... So if you scale that down to his alternative comedy, it's a niche market. They're now r- r- reading that joke... And they were never meant... It wasn't for them. It was never for them, and they're reading it and get offended. And what's more, it was never for breakfast. They're reading that offensive line mm, at breakfast, right. out of context, out of the tone, out of it. So it's not for them. And it was kind of... It was a really be- be- beautiful point of being comfortable with the fact that I'm not trying to make this for everyone. I'm trying to make it for those who either understand it or are susceptible to understanding it. Again, I'm not saying a preach... To the converted, just saying that there's some people that you shouldn't want to try. You shouldn't feel that need to try and win over. You shouldn't need to be loved. The the slogan of of my record label is, oh, "Oh, we may not be for you, and that's fine." Mm-hmm. And that was just a big realization. Yeah. Was that feeling right? No, that that encapsulates it perfectly. Yeah. And after a while, after a couple of years, I was like, I don't think it's for the American audience. Yeah. I can't exactly analyze why. There's a bunch of reasons, but I'm I'm really satisfied with how it's going. Let's go deeper into where it's working, yeah. and and it's just sort of. Um, but the internet makes all that possible. So yeah. we live in a time where we don't need that many gatekeepers. Yeah, and this brings us basically full circle to saying you know you can bypass yeah that sort of traditional uh, apparatus of thinking, okay, first I have to please the gatekeepers. Then I'm going to have a chance to see if I can please an audience. Now it's right away. You get a chance to see if you can please an audience. Yeah. And thank God we lived during that time that you and I could have that revelation fairly soon after we started that, you know, otherwise it would have been a wild goose chase, maybe lasting a lot longer. How can I sort of just sand off the edges a little bit more so that I can kind of just like convince them and, you know, to, to, to have the luxury of saying, okay, it's not easy to think of a rapping piano player in a bathrobe because there isn't really a role model for that. But thank God I didn't have to try to, you know, bend myself into a pretzel to try to please a gatekeeper. Yeah. It's, 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 it's why I always, I don't get that mad when everyone's up in arms because Instagram have changed their algorithm or things like that. Because my kind of outlook is, I'm still on there for free. Like, I used to have to hand a flyer out to someone for them to know what's going on. Or, now I can post about it. Again, they've changed how many people see it. It's still free and still a lot of people are getting to see it. I, again, I have came up in the days where it was hand-to-hand. It was, it was right. in the control of other people. There's so much in our control now. I was, I was thinking about it on the walk-up and it's like, it's like you've gone somewhere for the last two years and they've given you free hamburger and chips every day <laughs> and then you turn up one day and they say it's only free hamburgers now and you're like fuck you man what the fuck's up with this free hamburger it's like it's free hamburger still it's free that's pretty cool i liked the chips but it's still a free hamburger that's 
That's decent. Yeah, or in my case, so often people will be like, I discovered you however it was. The other day it was a weird Chris Evans, the Captain America actor, for some weird right. reason. Yeah. He just said, I'm, all I'm listening to is this guy, Chili Gonzalez, and he like linked to some Amazing. video of me performing. And you just saw all these people go down a Chili Gonzalez rabbit hole. Yeah. And I just felt this this very strong groundswell that lasted a few days. And I could just see that people were going down a rabbit hole and they were writing back to Captain America saying, you know, oh, have you seen this one? Oh, I didn't realize he's like teaching music. I didn't realize he also rapped and all this. I thought, God, in 1995, how could anyone have ever gone down a rabbit hole of anyone? It's like, you know, you had to convince a record company to spend 50,000 euros to make a video to hope that a station would play it. And then maybe people would be like, oh, I see what this person's all about. And that would be a one. Watching TV at that time. And that'd be a happy watching TV. And that'd be a three minute chance encounter yeah. with me whereas now if somebody if i'm just on an airplane and talking to someone what do you do and i'll just say chili gonzalez oh are you on youtube i'll say yes sure enough that person will go and they might if they like it they might spend a few hours watching yeah. videos and what a wonderful tool for all the people who previously would have had to just convince yeah. gatekeeper after gatekeeper to even have a chance and you know we all have a chance yeah that's a beautiful thing did, did you stumble upon having a back catalogue. I really remember it, it, it vividly that I kind of, I was two or three albums in and suddenly I was like, oh, I've got, I've got a, a load of music. I've got a load of music videos. I've, I've got enough for a rabbit hole now. There is that thing. Because it's a weird thing because you're so caught up in it in the moment. I've got enough to have a rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, because you're caught up in it in the that. moment, you're just going on and on. But then you suddenly go, all right, what? And it does, it gives you that kind of, that boost moment in your career or knowing that you're doing this as a career I guess when someone does find your new single and then they've got 10 more videos to go and look through and a few live things and things like that it is a weird kind of it seems to come out of nowhere because you're so in it at the time but then you're like oh I've got, yeah it sort I've of got dawns on you yeah. yes yeah exactly it's a bizarre one well thank you I'll, I'll, I'll wrap things up now and, and let you you get back to your evening, but thank you very much. Where can people keep up to date with everything that's that's that, that, that that's ahead? What's the process of the of next year's conservatorium and gigs? Well, Obviously, you got yes, yeah, a solo well, piano three. I out guess for the conservatory, people can go to my website chiligonzalez.com slash conservatory. And again, I I recommend going there even just to watch all the videos. That's As right. said, you, they're, you they're all on there. The, you can see it from the application, the launch for applications, all the way to the to the end concert. And there are a few minutes along each. It's not like it's saying go and start a new Netflix series. It's literally I was, I I genuinely thought as I was looking at, it, I was like. I'll watch the first couple and then I'll get an idea. I'll read up on it. And I watched all of them up to the gig. I've got the concert to watch still because that's longer. But yeah. Yeah. And other than that, I have my third solo piano album coming, which is, you know, those albums are the ones that are somehow more. People get more attached to yeah, my piano music yeah, in a yeah, deeper way yeah. than some of my other work. And this is really the end of the solo piano trilogy for now. Yeah. And so I'll be touring you know, from September onward. But you know, I just Again, people it's, it's, go- it's, Google Google me and yeah. you'll find hopefully something you like, whether it's the deconstruction videos or some crazy live stuff or um uh you know, I'm 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 happy to see what the algorithm spits out when someone just puts my name in the search engine. It's weird to, or it feels appropriate now to end on on Lil Wayne, but it feels like 
he'd put out mixtapes and all sorts of other things, but the Carter 1, the Carter 2, the Carter 3, that, they were the ones that were, even though some of the mixtapes would be amazing, that's what you're waiting for. And that's that, that's how it feels like with the a solo a piano albums, because it is, it's, there's, there's always a million things that you're working on. You've worked with... You've, you've worked on a beat for Drake, you've worked with Daft Punk, Peaches, we've not even got to talk about, Feist, so many people that are amazing, but it's, yeah, this That's stage, it's those... It's really it's those. the core of what I do, and it's, um, you know, there's also been a, uh, there's a documentary that just started to make the rounds. We premiered it in February, and uh, it's called Shut Up and Play the Piano, which refers either to the Zappa, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, yeah. or to the LCD documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Another Shut Up movie. I love but it. But <laughs> essentially, it's sort of, you know, at some point, I have to get back to the kid I was when my grandfather was teaching me respect for the music. And so yeah. maybe these solo piano albums also represent a kind of a return to an idealistic way of sort of saying... What if the music was enough yet yeah. again? That yeah. same question I'm always going to ask myself. Yeah. And maybe those solo piano albums sort of touch people the most because finally I'm sort of able to clear away all the angst yeah. and maybe live in a world, which I don't think we really live in, but I sort of posit a world yeah. in which my music could have just really spoken for itself. Yeah. So are you going to be a, t- a touring with yes. that record and everything? So yes. yeah. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute course, pleasure. For having me. It's flown by. Cheers. You've been listening to Squibbish Pits Discretion Pieces. There you go, that was episode 219, and I hadn't overhyped it at all, did I? Genuinely, go away and watch all of Chili's stuff on YouTube, the conservatory stuff, and the kind of breakdown of pop songs. They're all amazing. You've you've got a good chunk of free enjoyment here, and you can now go off and get even more f- free enjoyment. And all of that will lead, hopefully, to you um, paying for um, a Chili's album and the gigs he will do around that so yeah thank you for tuning in i'll be back on friday as i said it's a birthday party special distraction pieces podcast birthday party special so um come and check that out on friday until then have a lovely week um and use sunscreen and stay hydrated how hydration